Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome everyone to episode 79 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean, coming at you solo today. I've got a very interesting case to tell you all about. A couple of quick Patreon shout-outs, a heap of people jumping on board uh, to check out the most recent Urban Legends episode, so that's good to see. Big thanks and welcome to Jeff J, Morrison Jim, Stuart, Rainer, Lauren, Kim, Emma, Tracy, Aiden, Kate, Nicole, Catherine, Karen, Lisa, Cheryl, and Tani. Thanks for the support, everyone. Really appreciate that. The case I'm talking about today contains some graphic descriptions and discusses sexual assault, both of which can be triggering for some folks, so if that's you, keep that in mind and look after yourself listening to this one. Let's hop into it. Hello. Hello. Yeah, there's uh, someone hanging around the old uh, Paynham Police Station. There's uh, seems to be uh, probably uh, breaking down, I think. Haven't gone near it. Stuff off uh, Paynham Road there. Where are you ringing from? The phone box. In the Adelaide? Yep. In the Royal Adelaide? Yep. So how do you know what's happening out of Paynham there? Well, I've just seen them. there's a body there about half an hour ago. All right. Uh, you didn't stop to see what was happening there? No. No, all right. We'll uh, get on ahead. What's your name? It was the 17th of April 1999, and in Adelaide, South Australia, two rookie police officers were coming to the end of their shift. It had been a big week for the pair and the broader South Australian police force, as the Adelaide 500 had been on the weekend prior. Craig Lowndes took out the popular V8 supercar race, and the weekend saw an influx of tourists in Adelaide. Now things were starting to get back to normal as the two young officers returned to their vehicle. But as they did, they noticed a handwritten note on their windscreen wedged under the wipers. It read, There's a dead girl's body in the shrubs of the grounds near the main road of the Paynham Police Station. This is no joke. The two officers attended the station and inspected the grounds, and sure enough, they found a body. It was clear it had been there for some time due to the advanced state of decomposition. The officers called it in, and detectives and forensic specialists were dispatched to the scene. The location was actually not an active police station, but an old patrol base, only used occasionally at this time. Initial observations of the body indicated it was a young female, 162 centimetres tall or 5 foot 4 inches in the old money, with shoulder length blonde hair. There was a strong indication of sexual assault, either prior to or immediately after death, as her jeans had been pulled down and underwear removed. 
The clothing on her upper body remained, and it appeared as if she'd been strangled with her own clothing. But she had no personal effects on her, so police didn't know who she was at this stage. They also didn't know when she died exactly. Dr Ross James, forensic pathologist, was brought in to inspect the scene and conduct the autopsy. But figuring out the victim's time of death required another set of skills, that of an entomologist named Dr James Wallman. He identified the species of flies represented by the maggots on the body, and by cross-referencing the most recent weather conditions, he was able to determine their development and when the body was infested. The date he concluded the body had been infested was the 13th of April, so it was likely she'd been murdered the day prior on the 12th. In the meantime, police had confirmed there were no fingerprints on the note found on the police car. The post-mortem conducted by Dr Ross James also yielded few clues for investigators. No hairs, fibres, seminal fluid or DNA. It seemed odd that there was no physical evidence as sexual assault appeared likely, but it was also possible the elements and passage of time had deteriorated the evidence. The post-mortem, however, did provide some clues. The victim had three missing teeth and gold restorations. This might have been enough to lead to an ID had she been reported missing. A number of women had been reported missing in the broader region during the past couple of weeks. However, with her description and approximate age, police were able to narrow things down and confirm her ID via dental records. 30-year-old Maya Yakic lived nearby and her family had been looking for her for around one week. They'd last seen her on the 6th and reported her missing on the 12th, the day she'd been murdered, according to the entomologist. Maya's mother, Yagada, had actually walked past the location where her daughter's body lay in the bushes a number of times over the past week. Maya wore a dental plate to hide her three missing teeth, so police were able to confirm her ID with this. Why she'd been murdered and what she'd been up to for the past six days since her family last saw her would prove more difficult to determine. Maya was born on the 25th of January 1969 and she grew up in Croatia. She was halfway through a photography course in the country's capital of Zagreb in 1990 when conflict with neighbouring Serbia caused her to flee. She headed to Australia where her mother Jagada and stepfather John lived in Marden, Adelaide. They'd moved there some two years earlier, so Maya moved in with them. By 1997, she had her Australian citizenship and was working as a sales assistant at a fashion store in Rundle Mall. She was described by her employer, Pierucci, as a pleasant person and exceptional employee. Outside of work, Maya was said to be a bit of a loner, quiet and polite, but didn't really mix much with others. She spent a lot of time walking between home and the Marden shopping centre, but for no meaningful reason, just floating. She had one close friend, Ida Gregov, and she knew that Maya was suffering from bulimia, but other than that, her family didn't know who she socialised with, if anyone. Things with her family grew tense over time and Maya ended up moving out of the family home in Marden after a disagreement with her mum and stepfather. She moved into a place in Glenelg, but whether she was still there at the time of her death wasn't clear. There were some reports that Maya had been sleeping rough. This wasn't confirmed, but inferred after remnants of a fire, a pillow and a blanket were found across the road from a service station where Maya was last seen talking with staff.
As to why she'd gone to the Paynham area, well, it was possible, being a nice area with some beautiful parklands, that Maya was just wanting to take some photos. But no one knew for sure. After one week, Yagata thought it was unusual not to hear from her daughter for such a long period of time, so they searched a number of Maya's favourite places, the Hilton Hotel, the Stamford Grand Hotel in Glenelg, and when they found no sign of her, they reported her missing. For police, the lack of physical evidence was a big hurdle. Another was the influx of tourists over the past weekend with the V8 supercar race. It increased the suspect pool greatly. Was an out-of-towner responsible for this brutal murder? A closer look at occurrences on the 12th of April gave police a lead. And this was a phone call, or two calls actually, that were made to authorities that night. And I played these calls in the introduction. The first came at 10.18pm and the mail on the line reported that someone was trying to break into the Paynham police station. This was presumably an old station, no longer in use. An officer attended, went around the perimeter, but saw no sign of a burglar or break-in and left. Then at 11.52pm, authorities received another call from what sounded like the same guy. This time he reported a body in the bushes near the old station. Authorities again attended, but to a different station to where Maya actually was, and discovered no body, obviously. They subsequently dismissed the calls at the time as hoaxes. I'll play snippets of those calls again now. Police emergency. Hello. Hello. Yeah, there's uh, someone hanging around the old uh, Paynham police station. Uh, can you think we uh, finally uh, break in there, I think? I haven't gone near it. Stuff off uh, Paynham Road there. Where are you ringing from? The phone box. In the Adelaide? Yep. In the Royal Adelaide? Yep. So how do you know what's happening out of Paynham there? Well, I've just seen them. there was a body there about half an hour ago. Alright, uh, you didn't stop to see what was happening there? No. Oh, Alright, we'll uh, get on ahead. What's your name? I won't say it's catching no anyway. What's that? This was a confusing aspect of the case. How had police not been able to find a body on their own premises? And why had they gone to the wrong location after one of the reports? From what I can piece together, it would seem that there were a few police buildings in Paynham. The location where Maya's body was found was an old patrol base and possibly where the first officer attended to look for the break-in. This building was non-operational in a sense, but senior officers still used it for writing policy and different administrative things at times. It appears there was then an old police station, completely disused, and then a new operational police station. The old station was perhaps where officers attended to look for the body, which wasn't there, but at the old patrol base, so that's the only logical reasoning I can figure for them not finding Maya's body after getting those calls. Some police were stationed at the patrol base, however, maybe not at night, but during the day at this time. They and neighbours talked and worked in their gardens only metres away from Maya's body several times since the 12th, yet no one found her. There was even discussion around some kind of bad odour being present. Still no one found her. It was only five days later when the officers got the note on their windscreen that they managed to find the body. Why Maya's body wasn't found right away, be it incompetence or confusion with the stations and the descriptions the caller gave, they did have a lead with these calls. This was highly likely the offender and not some innocent bystander. Police were able to trace the locations of the calls, which had come from payphones. 
One was from a phone booth near to the scene, the other was from a booth near the Royal Adelaide Hospital on the other side of town, and you can even hear the call centre operator querying the caller on this location and why he knew what was happening down in Paynham. The caller then declined to give his name and hung up. So it seemed pretty clear this guy wanted police to find the body. He'd tried a number of times to tip them off about it. Why was he doing this? Well, they could only guess, but it was probable he was getting something out of it. With no forensic clues and these calls being all they had, police made the decision to do something new, something they hadn't done before, and that was to release this audio and a picture of the note in the media. Hopefully someone from the public would recognise his voice or handwriting. Although hundreds of leads flooded in with people claiming it was their neighbour or workmate, nothing led to identifying the caller. Police continued with appeals, setting up a mannequin of Maya at a police expo they had around this time, and a $100,000 reward was even released for information leading to the identification of this mystery caller. Still, it didn't give police any red-hot leads. Maya's case remained open, but the investigation scaled back over time. Leads dried up, and it'd be two years before police got another one. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In October of the year 2000, Megumi Suzuki arrived in Adelaide on an exchange program from her native Japan. An Australian friend of hers, Chris Hamilton, had attended the Shizuoka Prefecture just south of Tokyo and was welcomed into the Suzuki home as he completed his Year 12 studies. Megumi had now come to Adelaide, not far from Chris, where she was now studying in hopes of becoming an international student counsellor back home in Japan. She'd enrolled at Ainsbury College and taken a room on the sixth floor of the Torrens Valley International Residence at Modbury. She was one of 20 Japanese students in the building. Megumi loved fashion, karaoke, hamburgers and hot chips, and she'd often head out at night, occasionally landing herself in precarious situations, perhaps by accident, maybe her young age played a part, but it did cause some concern for her friend Chris, who reportedly spent a bit of time keeping her out of trouble. Megumi went home later in the year after this was discussed with her parents, Yuichi and Masako, but she returned seemingly on a second chance in 2001. On the 1st of August, Megumi spoke with her father and assured him everything was going well. She was studying hard and keeping out of trouble. Unfortunately, this was the last time she spoke with her parents. When Megumi didn't show up for school, her student advisor, Anne Wheaton, called her residence to see if she was there. Some of the building staff went to check and she didn't answer her door, so they let themselves in to see if she was okay. There was no sign of Megumi. 
Her bed hadn't been slept in, nothing in the room had seemingly been touched. It had been the census weekend too, and the blank forms were still there, also untouched. The school got in touch with Megumi's parents, who asked if her teddy was still in the room. Apparently she wouldn't go anywhere without this. It was still in the room, so they knew something was very wrong. Her friend Chris, who may have been more than just a friend at some stage, reports were muddled on that, some calling him a friend, some ex-boyfriend. He hadn't heard from Megumi either, which was unusual. They spoke often. So she was reported missing to the police, and they began tracing her last steps, postering and appealing to the public for information on her whereabouts. They determined she left her residence at 7.40am on Friday the 3rd, Security video had her leaving and attending school. She was also seen on CCTV at Rundle Mall during the day. She'd seen friends throughout the day and indeed the last friend to see Megumi knew she'd caught a bus from Grenfell Street, parallel to Rundle Mall, around 7pm on the Friday evening. This was the last time anyone who knew Megumi had seen her. After appealing to the public for information, a maintenance worker on the bus lines called in. He'd found Megumi's handbag in the bushes alongside the road she travelled along each day. This was along the Oban track at Campbelltown. Her ID was inside, school books, and a number of personal effects. So obviously, this caused great concern for her welfare, as it seemed likely she hadn't just taken a spontaneous trip. Foul play was now suspected. Police and the SES began searching the area thoroughly, with helicopters and dogs brought in as well. Megumi's mobile phone and her portable CD player were missing, but police did have her credit card and a bus ticket. Using these, they were able to ascertain that she'd travelled to a BP service station in the opposite direction to her residence. Question was, why was she heading in that direction? Staff at the BP were able to retrieve from their records that Megumi had actually purchased a SIM card on the Friday evening and subsequently made 12 calls, All to Chris Hamilton, the last contact being an SMS she sent to him. Friends have reported that Megumi mentioned having a disagreement of some kind with a male friend recently. This was possibly Chris. And it turned out that he lived not far from the BP service station. So perhaps Megumi was trying to visit him. She'd made it to the area and brought this SIM card, called him a number of times, but was last seen at the bus stop on Goodwood Road. There'd been no sign of her since. Police spoke with Chris a number of times. He said he'd been out with friends the night Megumi was last seen, which checked out. He was helpful in their inquiries and appeared genuinely distraught at the likelihood something had happened to Megumi. Then something strange happened. Chris contacted police after initial interviews with them and reported finding a pair of underwear out on the street in the general area around the BP and his home, and he thought that these were possibly Megumi's. So police had to check this out. Searches of her room showed she wore similar underwear, but they found no matching bra, and she had all matching sets. So at first they weren't sure, but when forensic testing came back, it confirmed the underwear was indeed Megumi's. It was very strange that this pair of underwear had been found in the area, by Chris nonetheless, and police hadn't located it in searches, or someone else hadn't found it, or at least noticed them first. Chris Hamilton didn't look good to police right about now, and indeed, they leaned on him pretty hard. In the absence of other leads, he was virtually their prime suspect. Maybe he and Megumi had had a disagreement, and things had boiled over, got out of hand, 
and an accident had occurred. Police interviewed a distressed Chris innumerable times, and even his close friends became suspicious of his potential involvement. But other than the call she made to him, and the strange underwear he found, there was really nothing to suggest Chris had seen Megumi, or wasn't where he said he was that night. Good as the friend or ex-boyfriend might look on the face of it, nothing was lining up and connecting him with her disappearance. Police continued their investigation, attending venues and clubs Megumi regularly attended, and her parents, who'd come over from Japan by now, released statements to the public. Then there was another strange occurrence, one that actually provided some hope. Two people reported seeing Megumi in Fullerton. They'd been standing metres away from her and said that she was wearing a wig. There was momentary relief from both her family and friends and the police. At least she was okay. Her parents issued another plea directly to Megumi, asking her to respond. But door knocks of the surrounding area and further inquiries and interviews with the two witnesses ultimately confirmed the sighting was unreliable. It wasn't Megumi they'd seen. And for her family, this news was undoubtedly shattering. Into the new century now, and police had taken slow steps to move along with the times and created a new website featuring unsolved cases. Members of the public could access this anytime, read information surrounding the case, and report anything they might know about it. As the leads dried up, Megumi's case was uploaded to this new website, alongside many others, one of which was that of Maya Yakich from some two years earlier, and it included the audio police had released of the calls back at the time too. An everyday law-abiding bloke by the name of Stephen Rust, who recently returned to the area after living away for a stretch, logged onto this site one evening and listened to this audio from the person of interest in Maya's case. He listened to it half a dozen times, closed his eyes, re-listened, he even went down the hallway and listened to it from a distance. To Stephen, it sounded like his brother. He could picture him saying it, the voice clearer each time he listened to it. It sounded too much like him not to report it to Crime Stoppers. If he was wrong, good, happy to be wrong, but if he was right, police needed to know. Stephen's brother, Mark, had never been violent, but he had spent time in jail for sexual offences. He'd get paroled, but then do something else and wind up in trouble again, seemingly getting worse each time. But his family held the hope he'd get better as he got older. Police knew Mark Rust as a sex offender, a minor sex offender at first, but he'd recently escalated and been charged with rape. He was actually in jail at this time, on remand, for a sexual assault he committed in the Rose Park area, the day after Megumi Suzuki had last been seen. Police were keen on him as a suspect, but they needed something more than his brother saying it sounded like him. So they asked Stephen to get a letter Mark had written so they could have a handwriting expert compare it with the note left under the police vehicle's windscreen. Glyn Smith was the man who reviewed the note and the letter Mark Rust had written, and he noted some outstanding features in the two pieces of writing. Firstly, there was a double cross through the letter T on both, which was quite unique. Secondly, the tight spacing and overlapping in some of the writing and the common words like the and of were all consistent with one another. He concluded the same man had written both documents. So this was enough for police to arrest and charge Mark Rust for Meyer's murder. He was in jail in Port Augusta, some 300 kilometres away when they did this, 
but when they took him away from prison to be interviewed, he denied any involvement. They returned him to Port Augusta, and while he hadn't given police any admissions, he did warm up to a fellow inmate and began telling him a few things. This inmate then went to police with a tale Mark Rust had told, about how he'd seen a tall, blonde girl walking along Paynham Road, he spoke to her, and then a struggle ensued. He pulled her into the bushes to have sex, but he ended up strangling her. It was a damning tale that bolstered the police's case, but it wasn't the only thing this informant happened to mention about Mark Rust. During his conversation with police, the informant happened to mention that Mark had a portable CD player in his cell, something he'd brought with him to jail. This piqued police's interest and they promptly contacted Megumi's parents to see if they had documentation about her missing CD player. Megumi's mother had the original documents that came with it, so presumably these had serial numbers and the like. This enabled police to search Mark Rust's cell and match it up. He had Megumi Suzuki's Discman. But having this wasn't a slam dunk on its own. It certainly connected him, but they needed more, which this informant would go on to get. Mark Rust opened up to him yet again, telling a similar story that he'd seen someone who he described as looking like Megumi on Goodwood Road at Westbourne Park. He'd attacked and raped her and told her not to look at his face. For whatever reason, she ended up seeing his face, so he hit her on the head with a rock. This had all happened in a paddock of some kind, he said, and he'd burnt her clothing there before disposing of her body in a nearby industrial bin. So police went back to the BP service station nearby and discovered a vacant block of land. This was maybe the paddock he was referring to. They searched it and found the remnants of a fire. A call to the local fire brigade confirmed they'd extinguished a fire at the block on the very night Megumi had last been seen. Police located a rock nearby, which was possibly the murder weapon, and some clothing and jewellery which was identified as Megumi's. But there was no body. They had to find this industrial bin he was talking about, and they found one at the rear of a business on Goodwood Road, but obviously with the passage of time, the body wasn't there. It had been emptied since, probably a few times. Was this the bin Mark Rust was referring to? They needed to know so they could track when it was emptied and where the rubbish had been taken. For that, they asked the Rust family to actually help and glean from Mark some details about the bin. This understandably put them in quite a precarious and awkward position. But they did manage to ascertain the bin he'd used had a picture of a hippopotamus on the side. The bin police found was of the same brand and had been emptied at the Wingfield tip. This was probably where Megumi's body was. Now they had the painstaking task of searching for it ahead of them. Eleven days they searched, starting by cross-referencing different rubbish bale numbers with the approximate dates they'd been dumped and searching in those general areas. Police actually located other remains unrelated to this case during their search, but on the 11th day they found Megumi, wearing the matching bra to the underwear that Chris had found on the street sometime earlier. But Mark Rust, despite his confessions to this fellow prisoner and the evidence stacking up against him, maintained his innocence in both crimes after being charged with Megumi's murder too. The pressure and evidence against him became too much in the end and 12 months later, he pleaded guilty to murdering Megumi Suzuki and a further six months on again, he confessed to murdering Maya Yakich. 
Mark Rust was sentenced to life in jail without the possibility of parole for both murders, the judge noting that he was incapable of controlling his sexual urges and further imposing a detention order of sorts, keeping him detained indefinitely in addition to the life sentences. After his arrest in 2001, Mark Rust had some psychological assessments with doctors Narain Nambia and Ken O'Brien, and it was within these reports that we'd hear the backstory of Mark Rust and the twisted path he'd taken in becoming a rapist and murderer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mark Aaron Rust was born in 1965 in Wyala, South Australia, around 400 kilometres northwest of Adelaide. As a kid, he was described as a perpetual loner. As an adult, he'd be diagnosed with a condition known as Kleinfelter's syndrome. This can cause rounded hips, enlarged breast tissue, issues with the testes and generally shriveled genitalia. And indeed, it affected Mark in all of those ways. Mark also suffered from an inability to reach sexual satisfaction when he wanted to in conventional situations. He was in a constant state of sexual need, but was unable to service it. Of course, the reasoning behind this wouldn't become clear to him until much later in life when he was diagnosed. As a kid in his early teens, he began following good-looking young girls around town and fantasising about having sex with them. He went out on dates and tried to have normal relationships, but ultimately, when they'd end, he'd wind up detesting the women, stalking them, and then flashing them. This became his thing to deal with his shriveled genitalia. Psychologists commented that it became a way for him to get satisfaction and a sexual thrill by flashing and then seeing the repulsion from these women. It also showed a clear lack of empathy for the women's feelings. Between 1983 and 1999, Mark was charged around a dozen times for indecency offences and a number of other offences including arson and trespassing. One arson attack he'd committed caused $642,000 damage to a building in Kensington. Mark was married twice. There's little known about his first marriage as it ended after only 18 months. During his second marriage, Mark and his wife sought help to conceive, and this was when he was diagnosed with Kleinfelters. It was discovered that Mark was infertile, and this caused a great strain on their marriage. This was further amplified by what was described as fighting fits before they were intimate, at which time Mark found it difficult to perform, despite having the urge to. His second marriage ended in 1999, amidst allegations that Mark sexually assaulted his stepdaughter. After this, he was said to have attended a sexual offenders treatment program but left halfway through the first day as he felt the program was stupid. 
It was only two months later that Mark Rust, working as a taxi driver, was cruising through Paynham. He was divorced, sexually frustrated and angry when he spotted Maya Yakic. He pulled up and asked her if she wanted to come for a lift and some fun. She ignored him and kept walking, declining his offer. This was something Mark Rust was used to, but he still wanted his fix. He drove past her and got out of the cab before employing his go-to flashing move. But the usual repulsion wasn't there with Maya, a notably tough woman who didn't suffer fools. She saw his display and laughed, which enraged Mark. He lunged at her, grabbed her, and dragged her into the bushes. Dr. O'Brien noted in his report, he grabbed her mouth with his hands and choked her. I asked him why he did this, to which he replied, at the time it was a thrill. He said he wanted to have sex with her, but he couldn't, so he decided to kill her at the last moment. The thing was, he hadn't gotten his usual kick from this attack. Someone wasn't repulsed, there was no reaction, which is what Mark had come to love, so he made the phone calls and finally wrote the note to police so they would find the body. It was even theorised by some that he was actually watching from a distance when police located Meyer's remains in the bushes. But Mark Rust wasn't even considered a suspect in this case at the time. He was just a low-level, handsy cab driver with a string of relatively minor indecency offences at this stage. He continued driving his taxi, but his criminality escalated. He was convicted and jailed for trespassing in late 1999 and was released on parole in July of 2001. Within the fortnight, he'd attempted to assault a woman in Cumberland Park. She was using an ATM when Mark pulled up and began masturbating in front of her. When he tried to get physical, the woman escaped his grasp and made it back to her car, locking it and reversing away. He then went on to attack and murder Megumi Suzuki in the following days. Again, he tried to sexually assault her. It wasn't known if he was able to or not, nor was it known why he had killed her. Perhaps she'd screamed or reacted in such a way that he felt threatened. There was some suggestions that she'd perhaps mistaken his command not to look at him for the opposite. Whether this threat of potential identification was why Mark killed Megumi, we can't be sure. What we do know is that he bludgeoned her with a rock, wrapped her body in some plastic he found nearby, and dumped her in the bin like a piece of rubbish. When asked by Dr. O'Brien why he killed Megumi, Mark Rust simply said, because I did. As I mentioned earlier, Mark was in jail on charges of rape when they connected him to both of these murders, and he committed this sexual assault the day after killing Megumi. On Kensington Road in Rose Park, Mark went on the prowl and found a woman working late in a nearby business. High off his attack the day before, brash as ever but continually honing his attack skills, Mark waltzed into the building wearing a balaclava this time, cut the power and phone lines before telling the lone female to get down on the ground and take off her skirt. She knew he had a knife on him, it was a box cutter, and thought the best way to survive this sudden attack was to submit and actually feign some kind of consent. Because she was able to convince Mark of this, and strangely at one point he even got her to hold the knife for him, he didn't kill her. It was an incredibly brave and potentially life-saving action from this woman, who was able to get a few numbers of Mark's vehicle's license plate as he was fleeing the scene. This led to his arrest and him ending up in Port Augusta, where he took Megumi's CD player, presumably as some kind of trophy or memento.
Although Mark Rust has since said that he's disgusted by his actions, professionals who've assessed him have noted that these words seem fairly shallow and he displays the opposite, being a lack of remorse. Dr. O'Brien noted further that, in view of the murders that he has committed and taking into account the acknowledged aggressive rape fantasies, it is my opinion that Rust is an extremely dangerous individual with a high probability that he would re-offend in a similar manner should he be released from custody at this time. Needless to say, the crimes committed by Mark Rust have devastated many people, notably the Suzuki and Yakich families, but also the Rust family, who've struggled to come to terms with how this guy they'd raised and grown up alongside had turned out to be such a vile and callous predator. Chris Hamilton, too, who was incorrectly put in the crosshairs as a suspect in Megumi's initial disappearance, just weeks after his 21st birthday, he attempted to take his own life after the harrowing ordeal he'd gone through. The Suzuki family are still distressed to this day, having lost their daughter who they had high hopes for, and Yagada took her daughter's remains back to Croatia and she still visits her grave every day. The stress of it all ended her marriage with John, too. So as we often see, very much a snowball and scatter effect these awful crimes have on a number of people. My thoughts go out to all who've had to deal with the fallout of Mark Rust's crimes. Towards the end of 2014, Mark Rust applied to the court to have a non-parole period put on his sentence, giving him some hope of release one day as the current indefinite sentence was particularly difficult on his mental health. He further noted he'd undertaken courses and programs to better himself. Prison officials opposed this, however, saying that Mark was aggressive and abusive towards guards, which he denied. As of 2017, that appeal process was still ongoing. I couldn't see any recent updates on that, but regardless, even if he did succeed in having a non-parole period put in place, there's still the indefinite detention order which would keep him behind bars anyway should he ever become eligible for parole. Just one sick puppy and a devastating series of crimes, I feel, for all the families. I think uh, particularly for the Suzukis, you know, sending your daughter off overseas to somewhere you thought was safe, kind of like a second home in some respects, and losing her like that would just be devastating. I can't see a day where this guy will be released, but it is perplexing that he was seemingly escalating in these crimes, yet not on the radar for Maya's murder or looked into for Megumi's disappearance, having just been arrested for rape. Always easier armchairing these things in hindsight, I guess, but uh, yeah, it would appear this guy just wasn't looked at seriously enough for whatever reason and regarded as more of a, a pest rather than a violent, escalating sexual predator that he was. But uh, you know, either way, at the end of the day, he was the bad guy who did the bad things in this case, not anyone else, so fingers crossed he, he stays behind bars where he should be. Quick happy thought for you all, I got some new runners. I got them off catch. I've never shopped on there before, but uh, it was good. I got a, a couple of uh, good cheap pair of Nikes and uh, and Reeboks, a, a bit more support than the old cons I've always worn, so I've had an interim pair of uh, $10 Kmart runners uh, for the last six months, so, so these are looking good. That's it from me today. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime-Podcast, or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. 
Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, get ad-free and early release regular episodes, and a swag of bonus content too. Our most recent Urban Legends number two episode, again, has been well-received. People seemed to uh, enjoy hearing about the pineapple smoothie and the sordid Crown Casino rumours, so we'll keep working away on some more of those. And next week, we have episode 80, a big case that uh, everyone on Patreon already knows about, but we'll be releasing part one of that next week and part two the following. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all soon. (laughs) 